th I think one issue that we face um, in reading Revelation and applying Revelation is, I mean, the way that uh, that John is doing this, it's a pretty subversive act. I mean, he's he's leveraging, he's appropriating some images and symbols and terms and, uh, you know, in ways that w could have made uh, a lot of people uncomfortable. And, and I think that the task of ministry, especially cross-culturally, is trying to figure out how to navigate that, where we push the button enough, but maybe not so much that people think that we're trying to upend the powers that be for our own sake or put our own, uh, put our own selves in that place of power. I think that's why the fact that conquering doesn't mean the way that the world conquers, but conquering means living in the way of Jesus, that um, it's the suffering servant, it's the lamb who is the lion, um, is so, so significant. Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today I sat down with two friends to discuss an interesting article they co-authored earlier this year. Garrett Best is a friend of the podcast and joins us again today. I really appreciated talking with him in June of 2021 about the book of Revelation, a book which simultaneously fascinates and disturbs many. He helped us demystify Revelation a little bit as we talked about the seven letters, the number 666, and other things. Go check it out, Faith in the Folds, episode 19. Joining me and Garrett today is the primary author of the article, which we'll talk about later, Alan Howell. Alan and I have known each other for almost two decades now, as my home congregation sponsored the Howell's mission work in Mozambique, something we'll hear more about later. The article Alan and Garrett wrote together is entitled, Apocalypse, Authority, and Allegiance, Interpreting Symbols and Revelation in Mozambique. And doing missions in foreign countries involves interpreting social, cultural, and political symbols, much like the process of interpreting scripture. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Alan and Garrett as we look at some real-world examples of how even something as strange as Revelation can come alive in ways we didn't expect. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us, and maybe share us with someone you think might benefit from this? And as always... Thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate y'all digging into Revelation and uh, maybe some of its applications with us. Uh, Garrett, congratulations to you, man. You are the only the second returning guest on the podcast. That's a that's a big deal in my book, man. That uh, I hope you're proud of that. Yes, very much. <laughs> And uh, joining us today for the first time on the podcast is uh, someone that I have known for a long time, Alan Howell. He has, uh, he's got a lot to share with us today about uh, how some things in the book of Revelation get applied in maybe contexts that are a little bit different from what we would think of as sort of a normal suburban church in the United States, uh, which is definitely where Garrett and I find ourselves ministering these days. Alan, will you uh, start us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you're doing these days. Uh, what's, what's your ministry experience? Help us to get to know you a little bit better before we dig into uh, some of this other interesting stuff. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for uh, having this opportunity to talk and share. Mm -hmm. uh, I love getting to talk about our experience in Mozambique. So um, I uh, grew up uh, in a suburban church uh, outside of Houston. And um, and I think uh, the weather in Houston, the heat and the humidity uh, probably prepared me pretty well uh, for uh, certain parts of Mozambique, including the, the heat and the humidity. Um, so um, when I went to university, I ended up, uh, well, I, I tell students, now that I fell in with the wrong crowd and I joined a mission team. And so you just have to be really careful who you hang out with. That's a rough crowd from what I, it's a, from what it's I a hear, rough, yeah. 
to the rough crowd. So uh, I had always imagined going into ministry, maybe preaching or youth ministry. But um, but while I was a student at Harding University, uh, I met some people who were forming a team to go serve uh, in Africa, and um, and so I I joined that team, and I'd never left the country before, and so I had some good mentors who said, hey, you should go on an internship and have some experiences. So I did that, and so um, uh, our team ended up leaving. Uh, the United States to move to Mozambique uh, in 2003. And so uh, Mozambique is a former Portuguese uh, colony. So the national language of Mozambique is Portuguese. And so um, our team uh, moved to Lisbon and we lived there for about nine months. And then at the end of 2003, we moved to Northern Mozambique. And um, Mozambique um, is, uh, most people know where Madagascar is. And so I like to joke that uh, we're right across from Madagascar minus the cartoon animals. So uh, that's the side of Africa that we're yeah. that we were on um and uh, northern mozambique uh is mozambique's a really long country it's about twice the size of california oh, wow. and where we where we lived was way up in the north um actually closer to uh, like tanzania uh uh, Mozambique borders uh, Tanzania and then also shares a border with Malawi. And so um, all the countries around Mozambique all have English as their first language. Okay. And so Mozambique is kind of on an island linguistically mm -hmm. uh, because of that. So our team, our goal was to um, help get a church planting movement going among the Makuameto people. Mm -hmm. And so after learning Portuguese, we also learned uh, Makuameto, which is a uh, the local language there is spoken by uh, probably more than a million people. Um, mm -hmm. And it would sound uh, kind of like Swahili. It has some connections to Swahili. Yeah. So, so our ministry there was about church planning and leadership development. And um, uh, our family lived in Mozambique for 15 years. Uh, at the end of 2018, we moved back to the States. And, um, and currently, I'm serving as a visiting missionary in residence, kind of a long-term visitor right now. This is my third year as the visiting missionary in residence uh, here at Harding, teaching um, freshman Bible classes and missions courses for Harding University and Harding School of Theology. So I'm also a graduate of Harding School of Theology as well. So uh, good to be in good company here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and the way that you and I actually first met each other a long right. time ago was when you were, uh, you were looking for partnerships and uh, landed at the Donaldson Church of Christ uh, on the east side of Nashville, where I and my current colleague, Mark, Dr. Mark Adams, uh, where we both ended up going, uh, we ended up growing up in, uh, in church together. So that's pretty neat. It, it's been neat to have this opportunity to kind of reconnect with you. Um, I, I remember when uh, when y'all came, there was sort of this flurry of activity to get to know you. And then, well, we didn't see you again for years. And then you'd come yeah. back. And then like, oh, we just, you and I just happened to come back on certain Sundays. Uh, at, uh, like a couple of times in a row, it, it was it was really fortunate. Um, and here we are kind of kind of doing this and uh, digging into some of this. It's uh, pretty neat. Some could say providential and, and maybe they're right. That's right. Well, um, the, the Donaldson Church of Christ uh, there in Nashville was a huge blessing to us and a great partnering church. And um, I still, you know, uh, I, I have memories of those uh, initial times when I was there and kind of giving a pitch. Basically, my pitch was, uh, hey, I want you to send me to do something I've never done in a place where it's never been done in two languages I don't know. Yeah. And so the fact that any church would say, hey, that sounds like a, a good investment. You're our guy. Uh, it is definitely uh, definitely a move of the Holy Spirit, and so uh, so really really thankful for the Donaldson Church and and how great uh, of a partner they were for us in that ministry. So they they loved us. I know you are one of their kids, but they also loved us like one of their own kids. I'm glad. So we're really yeah. thankful for them. I'm glad. Well, Alan, thanks for the uh, thanks for the introduction. Uh, Garrett, do you want to just sort of briefly bring us up to speed? What's new with you over the last two weeks <laughs> since I last interviewed you? Uh, not much is new. I uh, recently finished my PhD at Asbury Theological Seminary on Revelation. I think that's the most um, pertinent piece of information because that was sort of my contribution to this project. I'm still a minister at the Oliver Creek Church of Christ here in Bartlett, Tennessee in the greater Memphis area, and uh, I was just really blessed to be a part of this project with Alan, and, and he is the uh, 
definitely the main uh, person behind this whole thing. So I'm going to be more in a complimentary support role uh, during this, and I, I'm happy to fill that role. Yeah. So we've referenced this article that y'all co-wrote a couple of times now. Alan, would you be willing to give us sort of a kind of a brief summary of, of what y'all are trying to do? Maybe, uh, maybe let folks know where they might be able to access that. And then um, would you also be willing to kind of plug a series of presentations that you and Garrett have coming up here in September on, on this uh, topic and, and related topics as well? Definitely. So um, uh, the article that, that Garrett and I wrote is called Apocalypse, Authority, and Allegiance. So I hope you like the alliteration there. Apocalypse, Authority, and Allegiance, Interpreting Symbols and Revelation in Mozambique. I can tell, in, I can tell a couple of preachers titled this article. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and the article appears in a, a missions journal called Transformation. And um, uh, so it's in the most recent uh, 2021 issue that they put out. And we're really thankful that it found a good home uh, in this this missions journal. They were a good, good partner for this. Mm. Um, uh, really, this article came out of uh, some research that I had done. Uh, we might call it, we call it research, maybe also a little bit of desperation of me trying to figure out uh, while I was in Mozambique, how can I teach Mozambique, how can I teach Revelation in a way that will connect with my uh, Makuameto brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And um, and one thing that really jumped off the page when I would read Revelation with my Mozambican friends was all these powerful images and these images very much had uh, connections to leadership and authority and, and who is worthy of worship, some of these major questions through the book. And so uh, I started asking questions and just saying, hey, um, what are some images, when you think of authority, what are some images that come to mind? And so um, that led to a way for me of teaching Revelation in, in Mozambique that was really useful and helpful. And the more that I did that, the more I thought, wow, I think this is actually maybe close to the way that the original recipients would have heard hmm. the book of Revelation, different than the way that I heard it uh, growing up in Houston. And so um, when I heard Garrett uh, speak at HST's chapel on Revelation, I thought, oh my goodness, maybe maybe we could uh, partner together in, uh, in doing something cool about the book of Revelation in Mozambique. And so uh, really thankful that we uh, got to partner in this. And then um, in September, yeah, we're going to be presenting uh, the Harding lectureships are going to be about uh, the book of Daniel. And mm -hmm. so uh, we're going to present about uh, the title for those presentations is Pledging Allegiance, Unpacking Images of Authority in the Books of Daniel and Revelation, uh, part one and two. And so we'll do that on September 28th. And uh, one big idea that we're going to hit from a few different angles is how this um, failure to understand the confusing imagery in Revelation and Daniel mm -hmm. uh, can really lead us down the wrong track. And so being able to interpret those symbols of authority well um, can help us not only understand what's going on, but also figure out ways to apply that to our own context. Yeah. Garrett, what else would you say about that? No, I, I wouldn't have anything to add other than when uh, Alan approached me and just said, hey, here's what I was doing in Mozambique and here's how I was teaching Revelation. And he was basically like, is this your understanding of how it works? And I I was like, man, that is right on. Like, this is exactly what Revelation's doing. So what I what I was so attracted to in the project was um, what I was researching in terms of how Revelation impacted ancient audiences. Like, here you have a guy in another culture very different from my own who's teaching and who's getting to experience people hearing this for the first time. And so mm -hmm. I just thought that was a really cool uh, thing to be a part of and, and to hear his uh, perspective on teaching it in Mozambique. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a fascinating window just in what you said, Alan, a fascinating window into what it is that missionaries to foreign nations, foreign countries often have to do is find ways that creatively and still accurately retell or redepict biblical truths using you know, symbols and images that make sense to those people that's something we'll get into a little bit uh, later but it, is that just sort of generally speaking is that kind of a fair characterization as something that missionaries often find themselves doing 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's, there's definitely a tendency in missions to not make that cultural leap and just to continue doing it from our own, you know, perspectives as Americans or, you know, wherever we're coming from. Um, and so that's a real tendency and, and something that uh, is worth fighting against uh, because I think I, I actually have been really blessed by the ways that my Mozambican brothers and sisters read scripture. A lot of times their initial um, reactions or interpretations, I would think, oh my goodness, that's that's actually better than the the way I've been reading this text. <laughs> and um, and so I think it's it really has been a gift to me to um, read scripture with people in a folk Islamic African context because uh, mm-hmm. some of their like intuitions and hunches were often uh, really good ones and and helped me read scripture I think uh, I think in in better ways yeah so specifically because you mentioned folk Islamic African context that that raises a lot of questions I imagine for a lot of folks tell us about the religious climate of Mozambique you mentioned Islamic a lot of people, when they think, when they hear the word Islam, when they hear the term Muslim, they tend to think people wearing, you know, partic- particular dress with, uh, you know, the camel hobbles on their heads and stuff like that. Is that the kind of Islam that you ran into in Mozambique? Is Islam monolithic, or is there a particular brand or variety of Islam that you would find in a place like Mozambique? Wow, that's a really, really important question. I think, um, you know, uh, maybe one entry point to that is, um, I think uh, for people who are Christians, if you had, if someone asked them, like, is Christianity monolithic? We would definitely say, oh, no, it's not. There's all these (laughs) different kinds of ways of being Christians. And so Mm -hmm. I think uh, that could be a nice on-ramp for this topic. Um, Islam is not monolithic. So throughout the world, you've got people who are practicing it in very different ways, mm-hmm. um, even within Mozambique. So um, uh, Mozambique has about 30 or so different people groups, and a few of them would be uh, predominantly um, Islamic. Uh, some of them would be a little more, even within the, the province or state that we lived and worked in, there were some people groups that were more, I would I would call them more like hardcore Islamic. Um, uh, Maybe uh, they're, they're definitely dressing in Islamic dress and you're, you're going to see that and hear that. Traditionally Arab style dress. Yes. But then the Makuameto people, I would think of them more as like folk Islamic and the folk is in like capital letters and the Islamic is in like lowercase letters. Mm, So more like culturally Islamic, very much um, shaped by Islam, Mm -hmm. but because they were so far inland, um, Islam had more of an impact in East Africa along the coast. And so I would definitely encounter, you know, very serious, very devoted Muslims. But then there were a lot of people who I would encounter who may, you know, only fast for like one day of Ramadan, or maybe they would call themselves Muslims, but they don't actually pray, but they would refer, they would say they're Muslims because they have an uncle who's an imam or something Mm -hmm. um so maybe more like instead of like cultural christianity some like cultural (laughs) cultural islam yeah but but that still had a pretty big impact on their imaginations Mm -hmm. so for example even the word like to say to fast in makuameto you say otuka ramadani so you're even the word like Ah. to fast has the word ramadan embedded in it so you have all these different pieces within the culture that are still very much connected to islam um, but the depth of commitment to islam could be radically different depending on who you might meet Mm -hmm. Um, we got we got to know a number of uh, people who, you know, had been Muslims and and converted to Christianity. And uh, some of them experienced a lot of pushback from their families, Mm -hmm. but some of them didn't really experience any pushback at all. So it was very, uh, it was very different depending on, you know, which family they came from. Let me, uh, let me ask this question. Um, Since you mentioned kind of how, I think earlier in the, in the, in the podcast, you mentioned that, um, that the language that you had to learn, the Makuameto language, is similar to Swahili. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's a Makuameto is is a Bantu language. Um, there were a lot of like loan words from Swahili, um, so it was not a uh, you know not a, a Latin 
language mm -hmm. or uh, wasn't you know uh, similar to something that I would be familiar yeah. I would have been familiar with um, growing up but um, you know if, if you've heard Swahili spoken before Makumeto sounds a lot like that yeah and, uh, and honestly, I know I know just enough Swahili to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I think a lot of, uh, for people my age uh, who sort of grew up in the late 80s and early 90s, probably the Swahili we know we learned from the Lion King. Let's be honest. You know, right. Yeah, that's that's what I know. Um, so what I was going to Swahili as a language was largely influenced by Arabic historically. Right. Is, is, that, is that right? That's right. So, so how, I, I was asking this kind of string of questions to get to this question. Okay. How would you refer to God in Makuameto? Um, so in Makuameto, we would they would call God uh, Nluku okay. is is the main name, but then we would also use a number of different titles. Yeah. Um, but but uh, within Makuameto, there were a number of words like our greeting is uh, Salama is the way that you would greet somebody. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like Salam, um, uh, yeah. you know, connected to, you know, Arabic and then Hebrew with Shalom. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of linguistic connections. And, um, the first time that I went to Tanzania, um, I suddenly realized, Oh, wait a second. Uh, that word that I thought was Makumeto actually is Swahili. Oh, and that uh -huh. word is too. And that <laughs> word is too. So there were a number of loan yeah. words that, uh, that came from that. Yeah, I was curious because I know I, I could imagine at least that in in some respects, if say, you know, one of the common words for God sounded more like Arabic Allah, then that might kind of hinder that could potentially hinder maybe distinguishing from how from God of the Bible and how he's presented as not just the father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but more particularly the father of Jesus Christ. Um yeah, I was curious, but that doesn't seem to be the case uh, with with that particular term. No, even even my Muslim friends, I, ha I had some uh, Islamic leaders who were good friends of mine, and we had a lot of great conversations through the years. But even they would refer to God um, uh, as in Luku. Um, you know, when they're reading um, reading the Quran, obviously they would still sure. use yeah. uh, use the uh, Arabic name for that, as do you know Arabic Christians today. So very true. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I don't have a problem with Christians using that name for God mm. um, uh, because um, I don't think Islam, you know, owns that owns that name as a, yeah. as a name for God. Um, but even my um, Muslim friends in Mozambique would in, in everyday speech often use the Makuameto name for God mm -hmm. uh, because even they struggle to contextualize at times. Sure. So. That makes sense. Garrett, you uh, in 2012, right, you went uh, on a tour of uh, Israel with uh, Everett Hufford, is that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we did Greece and Israel. And uh, y'all, did y'all get to visit the Nazareth Church of Christ, the, one of the ones that he worked with? Right, we did. Yeah. How, how did the Arabs, Arabic-speaking Christians in Nazareth refer to God? Um, I honestly can't remember because I had no idea what was happening during the first. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I was trying uh, to set you up. <laughs> Yeah, for, no, for a softball. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't just specifically remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, my wife and I were fortunate enough to be able to go in 2014, and uh, Alan, like you had mentioned, yeah, that Arabic-speaking Christians were referring to God as Allah. Yep. Even hundreds of years before uh, before Islam came along. Okay, I, I asked about all the cultures and stuff. I had a similar experience in Senegal in 2008 when I did the Let's Start Talking program. So Senegal is on the other side of Africa, and it was a fascinating mixture of cultures where you had sort of a, a, a distinct African sub-Saharan culture. You also had Senegal as a former French colony, a clear sort of French influence. And Senegal, as a 95% Muslim country, had very clear um, influences of Muslim and some degree of Arab culture. You think of stereotypical Arab architecture and things on the mosques and the fact that there are mosques uh, all over the city in Dakar, the capital city. It's kind of a fascinating uh, mixture, and it, it seems to be at least similar to maybe what you experienced in uh, in Mozambique. So, yeah. As I have mentioned kind of... Uh, you know, Alan, you had this, uh, you, you wanted to kind of know if, if you were teaching revelation in a way that was helpful. And, uh, then Garrett was sort of the spark, the wind beneath your wings, maybe 
for this for this uh, chapel devotional that he offered there in Memphis. Uh, was that what gave you to the idea to connect mission work in in Mozambique to, to Revelation? Uh, you know, I've mentioned that before, but you know, can can you dig into that just a little bit more? Yeah, I think. Um... You know, it was it was mostly kind of taking some of the ways that I had seen to be really helpful teaching Revelation in Mozambique and doing some uh, sanity check or some fact checking and me saying, hey, Gary, does this does this fit? Like, is this is this a good am I doing responsible? Uh, am I doing responsible work or is this uh, is this not? And so the more that we talked about it, um, I I had um I had hoped, you know, that we would be able to to co-write something together and and really um, kind of lean on me for more of like the Mozambique and what it would look like to contextualize for that context, and him uh, doing the heavy lifting in the Revelation part uh, to making to make sure that we were on track with that. And so um, it was uh, it was good uh, to kind of field test and then you know even um, kind of refine this and make sure that we had something that that connected the dots so it was kind of an ambitious project and uh and i'm glad we uh glad we were able to work on it well i think y'all pulled it off pretty nicely um i i really enjoyed reading the article and um i you know this is not y'all's fault i i didn't enjoy the fact that it had end notes i would prefer footnotes but that's just a scholarly hang up that uh, a lot of guys in biblical studies have but that's that's us um Alan, one of the things that you uh, you mentioned here uh, that you mentioned throughout the article, uh, and Garrett, you also too mentioned this several times in the uh, in your contributions as well, is this idea of power and how power often gets tied to authority. Alan, help us understand, uh, give us kind of a window into African cultures. I, I guess specifically Mozambique, right? If Islam is not monolithic, it might be a misnomer to describe, you know, to to think of Africa as monolithic in terms of culture and practice and stuff like that. Help us understand why it is that power is so important, especially in some of these more predominantly folk-influenced cultures in places like Mozambique. Yeah, uh, I think I think this is a really important question. It's also a really big question, and um, and so I'm going to have to paint with a very big brush. You know, to uh, we're we're going to be speaking in some generalities here. Um, one on ramp that I like to use for talking about why power matters so much uh, in uh, the African context that we served in um, is. Uh, there was uh, some work done by Eugene Nida, and then recently uh, a guy named Jason Georges wrote a book called The 3D Gospel, mm-hmm. and he talks about how uh, one way that we could understand the world is that basically there are three different types of cultures. There are um, guilt-innocence cultures, there are honor-shame cultures, and then there are fear-power cultures. Okay. And, um, and he does a good job of saying, you know, if those are the three primary colors, um, you're, you're probably not going to encounter a culture that's just one, but you, you may encounter a culture where the dominant language or the dom- dominant color in the color palette is fear. Um, but maybe uh, a, another color that would be useful in our context in Mozambique was also shame. Mm-hmm. So the language of fear and the language of shame were huge themes in the Makuameto language. Now, uh, this is a slightly, a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but like guilt was not a major concept for our Mozambican friends. Okay. We actually didn't have a word in Mukuameto, like a unique word for guilt. So if I had tried to talk about the gospel in terms of like a guilt innocence presentation, uh, it was just like go right over people's heads. So listening to the way that people talked, they use the language of fear and power all the time. And they use the language of honor and shame all the time. And I think uh, a lot of the, the fear and the power comes from having a very, uh, their experience everyday life of um, spirit possession and magic and divination and illness that in the world around them, the powers that be, there, there are a lot of competing powers that be yeah. around them. And so um, when the powers are there, there's also a lot of conversation and discourse about allegiance and you know who which power is worthy of following which power is worthy of our allegiance or our worship or our attention and so um 
I think for me, that's one way that um, that made this project really important is to spend some time um, connecting with that because that was such a powerful <laughs> concept uh, and and really really useful for our friends in Mozambique. Yeah. And so that theme in Revelation really popped out to them. Yeah. So to give kind of a kind of a, a quick and sort of generalist answer to this question of like who, what like what power do you do you worship or something like that in in the minds of many in a place like uh, northern Mozambique where you were the power that one would you know, worship or or fear is the most powerful power the most powerful entity is is that is that kind of fair yeah. So, you know, stories from the Gospels where um, the demons or those who are demon possessed are throwing themselves at Jesus's feet. Mm-hmm. You know, for me growing up in America, I thought that's kind of a weird story. But sure. um, yeah. but reading those stories in Mozambique, people thought, oh, wow, like, OK, well, Jesus has power over the spirits. Mm-hmm. So even these evil spirits are worshiping or they're at least, um, you know, bowing before they're, they're giving deference to Jesus as the most powerful one. Mm-hmm. So uh, that image, uh, like seeing Jesus as, uh, understanding Jesus as the conquering king, the victorious Lord, um, Christus Victor, like the, these images were really useful and um, were the, the ways of talking about Christ that really connected with people in Northern yeah. Mozambique. Yeah, that um, I, I don't find it coincidental that almost everyone I know who has uh, done any kind of mission work in, um, in, in any kind of African setting, uh, whether from Churches of Christ or outside of Churches of Christ, has, uh, has had to figure out some way to deal with that particular way of viewing culture. Uh, Garrett and I had a, had a professor at uh, Asbury who, um, who spent a, a significant amount of time in, I think, Congo and um, you know, had similar experiences and family members, similar experiences um, de- dealing with just how, how one presents and expresses their, uh, their uh, you know, expresses the gospel. Garrett, help us kind of, uh, kind of translate what Alan's been talking about from, you know, talking about power in sort of a northern Mozambican context to like, do we see that kind of thing in the, in the Bible? Uh, you know, how would folks in maybe an ancient Greco-Roman time view power? Do we see any examples of stuff like this in the Bible that people can go to and say, oh yeah, that, uh, that's what that is? Yeah, I, I actually wanted to start out by just reading a verse or two from Revelation, just as like you listen to Alan describing the way that he talks to people in Mozambique about power. Mm-hmm. Then let me just read this. And I think this yeah. is where it just like jumps off the page. So this is from chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. Um, you just listen to Alan talk, and you just read a verse like that. And you see how this message is really kind of speaking into that context. Mm-hmm. Alan's probably going to kill me for not including this in the article. I just <laughs> actually realized this. But um, the word for authority occurs 21 times in the book of Revelation, and it's the most of any New Testament book. Wow. Um, and, and in chapter 12, verse 10, he, that what we just read, the authority of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Well, in the very next chapter, chapter 13, five of those 21 times of authority occur in chapter 13 because the kings of the earth, the beasts, uh, the emperors, they're the ones who are claiming up, claiming authority and setting up thrones on the earth. And so the entirety of sort of the project of Revelation is like these dueling authorities and allegiances and um, who are these Christians in, in Asia Minor going to follow the authority of God's Messiah, Revelation 12.10, or are they going to 
follow the authority of the one who set up a rival throne empowered by Satan, you know, that that's revelation chapter 13. Mm -hmm. But what revelation teaches us, which this is what Alan helps us to understand so much as well is how that authority asserts itself. Um, it's very clear in revelation that the way that the Kings of the earth and particularly the Roman emperors assert their authority is by making war. So in Revelation 11 and Revelation 13, this is what they do, is they exert their power through shedding the blood of other people and conquest and conquering. So another word that shows up a lot in Revelation is conquering. And so in every one of the seven messages to the seven churches, he'll say, if you conquer, you know, this is what you can look forward to. So all Christians are called to conquer. Well, if conquering is defined by the way that it happens with Roman emperors in a Greco-Roman context, then that's killing and that's conquest and that's shedding of blood and that's grasping for power. That's what authority looks like in that context. But then revelation like radically redefines what real authority is and what conquest actually is, particularly in the image of revelation five, um, which we may have dug into in our other podcast, but just, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, but how is the lion conquered? Well, he's conquered by being the slaughtered lamb. Yeah. So it's just a totally different way to like, it's a su subverted way to think about Roman ideology, about conquest and authority and allegiance and ruling. Where in the kingdom of God and the kind of conquest that Christians are called to is the kind of conquest that we see in god's messiah jesus which is not shedding others blood but laying down your own life and, and having your own blood be shed yeah i i want to say i forget precisely where it was and precisely how it was worded but i want to say that in the article there was a line somewhere along you know, there's a line somewhere in the article that said something to the effect of you hear the footsteps of the lion and you turn around and and see a slaughtered lamb yeah and when i read that i thought wow that's that's really poetic, more poetic than what you normally find in, in a scholarly article somewhere. Um, props to whichever one of you who uh, who penned that particular uh, line there. Uh, to, um, I, that, I mean, that makes total sense. That really does make a lot of sense. This notion of power, uh, Alan, let me, uh, let me ask you this. Um, this notion of power comes up a lot in cultures or maybe I'll ask it this way. Is it fair to say that this notion of power that, that we've been describing is more prevalent in more overtly spiritually aware cultures than, say, what many of us may have grown up here in, I mean, I grew up in Nashville, Garrett grew up in Birmingham, you grew up in Houston. Guys, that's a Bible Belt. Um, is this notion of power that we've been talking about more prevalent in places like northern Mozambique than, than kind of where where we may have found ourselves growing up? Mm. That's a, that's a good question. I'm I wonder if I mean I think power. Uh, I think in different parts of the world, people definitely understand the spiritual overtones or spiritual connections to power in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think the fact that, um, you know, it's been a crazy year <laughs> and a lot of things have happened and, you know, different ways of understanding what has happened. Um, I think there are spiritual components at work. And, and I think um, in, in some ways, I think our, our, my friends in Mozambique very much had, had better eyes to see the spiritual realities that were happening, even though they might talk about it in ways that I didn't necessarily uh, connect with sure. um, all the time. But I, th I think one issue that we face um, in reading Revelation and applying Revelation is, I mean, the way that, uh, that John is doing this, it's a pretty subversive act. I mean, he's, he's leveraging, he's appropriating some images and symbols and terms and, you know, in ways that, um, you know, could have made uh, a lot of people uncomfortable. 
And, and I think that the task of ministry, especially cross-culturally, is trying to figure out how to navigate that, where we push the button enough, but maybe not so much that people think that we're trying to um, upend the powers that be for our own sake or put our own, uh, put our own selves in that place of power. I think that's why the fact that conquering doesn't mean the way that the world conquers, but mm. conquering means living in the way of Jesus, that um, it's the suffering servant, it's the lamb who is the lion, um, is it, so, so significant. Yeah. So I would just add that. Um, Please do. Yeah. 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 I, I would add, you know, ch check out the article for a little bit more detail here. But um, Rome just had all of these ways. There's a um, there's a book that I like the title of. It's by a scholar named Christopher Frilingos, and uh, it's called Spectacles of Empire. And just the the Roman Empire and the emperor had so many ways at his disposal to. Um, to perpetuate, perpetrate the ideology that Rome was the supreme empire and it was empowered by the gods and that the emperor was a god himself. And mm -hmm. Rome had, um, the emperors had a cult and they had coins um, and they had, people might be surprised to know this, but they had choirs that went around and just sang worship songs to the emperors. Um, they had gladiator matches. They had parades and festivals and uh what christopher frilingos argues is all the crazy stuff in revelation and the reason that it's sort of in the genre that it is is it's offering a counter spectacle it's offering a christian version of the propaganda uh to kind of counter the, the 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 spectacles of the empire um and if i could just mention like one of the things that i mentioned in the article that yeah. that's so cool um so most of the images of Revelation come from um, the Old Testament, and I think the reason for that is Revelation and John is very self-consciously writing a prophecy, and he uses the word prophecy to describe what this is, mm -hmm. and we think of prophecy as future-telling, but if you think about a prophet in the Old Testament like Jonah, it's not future-telling. It's like forth-telling that you need to repent right. and speaking truth to power and empire, and that's, that's what revelation is in the sense of prophecy is like speaking truth to empire mm -hmm. um, and, and calling empire for what it is and kind of pulling the curtain back and revealing. So in the, in the very first vision of the exalted Jesus, of the exalted Christ, most of the descriptions of having white hair and, and some of those things, they're drawn straight from Daniel 7 and 10. But there's this one description of the Christ that he has seven stars in his right hand. Mm -hmm. And that does not show up anywhere in the Old Testament. It's like, where does that image come from? Um, I believe you're going to be displaying a coin like right about I'll now. Have it. Yeah, yeah. There was a coin that was minted during the reign of Domitian, which is where most scholars believe Revelation was written. Near the end of the first century, right? First near century the end AD. of the first century, yeah. um, where on one side it has Domitian's wife and her head, but on the other side, it's a child that it was a deceased child of Domitian and the child is seated on a globe. And people are always interested to learn that it was not Magellan who first discovered that the earth was round, <laughs> that Romans going back to the time of Plato and Aristotle knew that the world was round. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a guy named Eratosthenes who had actually measured the circumference of the earth. Like and they he was knew pretty close too. He was pretty so close. This, yeah. Yeah. He, he was really close. So, Here's this son of a god, Domitian, who is seated on the circle of the earth, who has power over the whole earth, and he's facing his right hand, his dominant hand, and he's holding seven stars. And those seven stars represent the seven planets. Like that's how uh, people used to think there were seven planets. And that is, a, that is an, an image that the empire used to spread this ideology, that the kings and the emperors in the line of, the, of Domitian and the other emperors they are the ones seated over the earth in all power, holding the power of the whole universe. Mm -hmm. And Revelation takes that and says, no, he's not. It is the exalted Jesus. It is the Christ who is holding the seven stars in his right hand. He is the ruler of the world. And so as, as Alan was pitching his project, that's just one example. Like there's yeah. several more of those where Revelation is taking the symbol 
of authority that was claimed for the emperors and the empire and is reappropriating that to say, no, it's actually the lamb on the throne with God that, that, that has that. So that's the gist of sort of my contribution, I guess. Yeah. Well, and, and like given, given sort of my training and um, I mean, you and I, you and I had the same, same seminar in revelation with, uh, with Craig Keener. Um, man, was that four years ago now? Have we been, <laughs> Is that where we are these days? So like 2017, um, we, we, yeah, we, we saw uh, just how that you know thing happened time and again. And, and in taking New Testament world with Rick Oster, um, you know, almost 10 years ago now, <laughs> like oh, that kind of stuff just happened often where you know, routinely these, uh, these guys were taking images or you know, take Paul, for example, in uh, Acts 17, um, you know, uh, reappropriates some, uh, you know, some Greek poetry to, uh, to use that as an opportunity to reveal something about God in, in a very different way than, say, how John reveals something about God, but still, Paul takes it as an opportunity to reveal something about God that uh, otherwise these folks wouldn't know and kind of uses a, a common you know, starting point. Alan, you've uh, you've mentioned how you've been able to kind of share revelation and and sort of the 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 thrust of revelation. You've been able to teach revelation in in a context like Northern Mozambique by um, by sort of translating it. And I for those watching it or for those just listening, I'm using translate in kind of air quotes where you're not just translating you like. English to Makuameto, you're you're helping helping kind of explain symbols and things like that. Um, you know, in your mission efforts, you know, how did you and and your your team there? What were some ways that y'all did that that you felt were maybe particularly effective, or you know, kind of help us help us sort of see boots on the ground? Like how how did you actually do this? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, one, it's important to appreciate, you know, that every culture has its own kind of like a symbolic world or symbolic universe, you know, mm -hmm. that, that they're kind of pulling on. And, um, you know, I think effective preaching or communication in the United States, we might pull examples from Star Wars or from, you know, whatever, whatever we're familiar with that yeah. can help us connect with our audience. And um, within the context of Northern Mozambique, uh, the way that we were able to communicate this um, came from spending a lot of time with people, hanging out and asking a lot of questions and also doing a lot of trial and error. Um, but, you know, if Revelation is addressed to, you know, seven churches in Asia, um, it was appropriate for me to say, hey, well, if John was writing this to us today um, in Northern Mozambique, what kinds of images, what kinds of symbols would he uh, connect with to help us understand? Mm -hmm. And so I did some interviews with individuals and experimented, you know, in preaching and teaching and small group classes. And um, there were some uh, images or symbols from like the national level uh, okay. that Mozambicans would be really familiar with, you know, from like images on flags or images in um, from like speeches, uh, like um, one former president of Mozambique um, uh, referred uh, to goats. And, uh, and he talked about how um, a goat will eat where it's tethered mm -hmm. as a way to say like, hey, people are going to be corrupt. And so, you know, the goat eats where it eats where it's tethered. And that kind of became this what like, a wild justification, right? Oh, I know. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of understand it because the Mozambican government, especially at that point, didn't always have the funds to pay the government employees. So this was a way that they could keep eating while they're tethered to their decks, to their desks. Mm -hmm. um, but long term, that kind of created this culture of uh, corruption, where corruption was accepted, and uh, that would that phrase was used to like justify corruption. And so, when I would talk about, well, what is what kind of leadership does Jesus call us to? I don't think it's a goat eats where it's tethered type of leadership because we're not supposed to follow the goat; we're supposed to follow the lamb, right? right. Yeah. And in Revelation, uh, a goat ends up on the menu. Um, later, later at one of the feasts. So um, playing around with the, some of those images yeah. uh, were really helpful. Um, 
and so some of those images from like the national level were really helpful. Uh, also like um, registry books um, and getting the right stamps. I mean, those are images that show up in, in certain ways in Revelation. And so our Mozambican friends really resonated with that. But beyond that, there are, you know, you may not see some of these images on posters, but within like the traditional Makuameto culture, there was also, there were also many other resources, images related to authority from um, where kings would sit. Kings would sit on beds. Um, kings would be anointed, not with oil, but with flour. And so Jesus is the anointed one. You know, he's referred to as the Christ in Revelation. My Mozambican friends wouldn't imagine him having oil on his head. They would imagine him having flour on his head. Yeah. And so we would talk about that, you know, and uh, a number of different images. Um, the image that stood out to me in, in the article unpacks these, but the image that I found to be uh, the most helpful um, is this idea of the intonto. So um, the word intonto is a, is a cool image because it's a complex image mm -hmm. and can, can give the idea of both weakness and strength. So an intonto is the word for crutch or walking cane but it's also the word for a scepter that like a king would carry. Mm -hmm. So it can mean scepter or staff or crutch or cane. And, um, and, and even um, I have here with me, one of my, one of my friends who's a traditional king in Mozambique before we left, he gave this intonto to me and he said, you know, take this with back, back with you to America. And he would always carry around his uh, intonto with him. And it kind of looks like Harry Potter's wand, but maybe a little <laughs> longer than that. Yeah. But so this word intonto um, could mean like a scepter that a king would carry, but it could also be like a sign of weakness of like mm -hmm. walking with a cane. And there was this song that a few of the churches in Mozambique would sing that basically said, uh, Jesus is my Ntonto, uh, going with me on my way to heaven. And, you know, you could hear that as like, Jesus is my crutch, where from an American perspective, we might think, oh, religion is a crutch. Like, I don't know about that. That's not, that's not something we want to do. So mm -hmm. it was always kind of startling to hear my Mozambican friends say, oh yeah, Jesus is my crutch, but he's also my scepter. <laughs> so it's this symbol of weakness, but it's also a symbol of strength. And so when I would teach Revelation uh, and we would kind of walk through different uh, options or symbols or images that John could have used if he was writing to Northern Mozambique, I, I feel like John would probably uh, want to leverage that song as what he would do in his message to the church yeah. in Northern Mozambique, that um, throughout Revelation, Jesus is both weak and strong. Uh, he's a lion and a lamb. And for our Mozambican friends to leverage the, the image or the symbol of authority that has both weakness and strength mm -hmm. was a really useful um, image of authority that connected to a robust Christology. Yeah. And, uh, and so to me, for me, that was really, really helpful and useful. Yeah. Garrett, uh, Revelation seems like it does something similar with its use of slaughtered lamb imagery. Is, is that something you can dig into uh, for us for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've already kind of spoken to that and how mm -hmm. just Revelation kind of subverts, uh, subverts those kinds of things. I mean, um, I, I think that is sort of the argumentative or rhetorical strategy of Revelation really is to take these images that Empire is selling and subvert them. I mean, um, another one would be in chapter 17, you've got the, the harlot who is seated on seven hills. And everybody would have heard that and thought, well, this is the goddess Roma seated on seven hills, which are the seven hills of Rome. Yeah. Um, there's a coin that I'll have you display here as well, yeah. where you can see the goddess Roma seated on seven hills. And Revelation says, like, that's not the story. That's not the right story. And says, actually, um, you know, she's a harlot and she's empowered by Satan. And ultimately that ideology uh, is going to eat itself alive. You know, if you live the empires of the world, it's going, because that's what happens in Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is that the, the, the three kind of power, the power of three Satan, and then the two beasts and the harlot 
they start destroying and eating each other alive. And that the way of that, uh, of the empires of the earth is death. And so um, it, it just undercuts all of that in order to point to the lamb. Um, now, I, I think the really other interesting question is, I'm, I'm really glad we're thinking about Mozambique, but to me, this whole project raises a question that, that we didn't get into. I don't know, Alan, maybe this is part two, but just what does this look like in an American context? Um, I think there you know, are some people doing some good work around that, but I think we need more of that. Like what, what are the symbols of authority in our own culture? Because goodness gracious, like politics gets us in a lot of trouble, particularly as Christians. And so mm. I, I take encouragement from from Alan's work and, and his thoughts to be like, how do we need to do this more um, in, in our own context? And I think Revelation could be a springboard for this kind of work here, as well as as the way it's been used in Mozambique. Yeah. Uh, Alan, any any thoughts on that? I mean, you've spent a significant amount of time outside of, uh, of the country. I, I'm not asking you who do we as Christians vote for, but I'm curious to know sort of how do you, how would you, having some distance and being able to look uh, still as part, but also not part, uh, you know, you got any insight on that you'd be willing to share with us on the spot? I didn't plan to ask you that ahead of time, but leave it to Garrett to pose a, a controversial question here. At the end. Well, I, th I think this is a really important question. And I think, um, you know, when uh, just this Sunday I was preaching and uh, talking about this issue, but from a different angle and thinking about, you know, hey, anytime we, you know, if we think about idolatry, you know, what does idolatry look like today? Well, anytime we let our economic identity or our national identity or our denominational identity, whatever it is, um, if we put that above our allegiance to the kingdom of God, well, that's, that's idolatry. Mm -hmm. So anytime our, uh, our wallet, or our passport or uh, our couch gets placed above our baptism, that's idolatry. Yeah. And so I think being able to um, uh, unpack those symbols and, and uh, poke holes in them and uh, reveal the, I think, I think John is, you know, poking holes. He, he's, he's showing that the gods of Rome are plastic and cheap and, uh, and they won't, they won't stand. Um, they won't stand the presence of the risen Christ, mm -hmm. and so um, being able to expose those things to the fire of the presence of the Lord and let uh, let that really um, be revealed for what it is, I think that's something that Revelation does, um, and it's something that as ministers we, we need to be talking about and asking those hard questions to uh, to try to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, let me pitch this to y'all uh, near the end of our time, and I, I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Um, but let me pitch this to y'all from from a geopolitical scale, right? From a from an international scale, like we see in the Book of Revelation, um, <clears throat> all the way down to you know a, 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 a folk Islam, uh, a folk Muslim uh, practitioner of magic in you know a place like northern Mozambique. So we're talking about two very different scales here. Would it be fair to say that at least you know, from a biblical perspective like Revelation, that worldly power always has a spiritual component to it? Is that too much of a stretch? Is that, is that accurate? How does that strike y'all? I mean, I think uh, one thing that my Mozambican friends have, have taught me is that um, that really everything is spiritual. Okay. And, and I think if sometimes that can be interpreted as nothing is spiritual, sure. um, but I think if we are living lives, if we're living in a world that um, God is committed to and is connected to and is working in uh, where God's spirit if, if, if I have the Holy Spirit in me and you have the Holy Spirit in you, then everything that I'm doing is, can be spiritual. Yeah. And so um, the worldly powers um, are spiritual, but, but they can be darkly spiritual if their allegiance is to the beast, right? Or to mm -hmm. the dragon um, and ha have, has, has given over their authority and influence uh, to to the ways of this world that aren't of the kingdom of God. Yeah. 
So uh, I think our, our friends in Mozambique would say, well, of course, like all, all the powers of this earth uh, are going to be spiritual. The question is whose allegiance, who, who do they have allegiance to? Are, yeah. they, are they revealing their allegiance to the King of Kings or um, the fake uh, the fake uh, powers that be that uh, try to hold our attention and our allegiance. Mm -hmm. Garrett? I would just say that uh, I think the vision of Revelation is in, articulated like in 1115, where it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Mm -hmm. And so far as the kingdom of the world is becoming under the reign of our Lord and of his Christ, like that's the vision but I think that we see that the kingdoms of the world end up going after the kind of power that Revelation is trying to subvert, mm -hmm. uh, not going, you know, um, the kingdom of, of the Lord and his Christ looks very different. I'll, I'll just give one controversial example in terms of symbols. This I, I've is, been waiting for some real controversy. Yeah, here, I mean, so this, let's this hear it. Kind of, this is the kind of place because this showed up in American discourse recently, just mm -hmm. in the last few years. Revelation talks about walls a lot uh, at the, the end vision of Revelation, and a wall has become a very powerful like political symbol in our own day. But the, the point that Revelation has to make, contrary to the way walls are used in our own context, is that the gates of the city in the walls are always open so that people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue can come into the city so long as they place their allegiance in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the way that we think about walls, um, I, I would say the message of Revelation like comes in and speaks subversively into that. Um, so I would think that's the kind of thing that we need to be doing where we're applying the message of Revelation into sort of our own uh, kind of symbols that show up today in our own politics for authority. Yeah, yeah. Guys, as we wrap up here, any any final uh, takeaways? Any uh, any mic drops that y'all wanna y'all wanna lay out for us before we wrap up? No, thanks so much. This was fun. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate y'all uh, tuning in with us uh, today. Thank you for uh, thank you for putting together uh, this article. I, like I said, I'm gonna have a link to a uh, I'm gonna have a link to where folks can uh, folks can find this article in the description. And some of the other things that we've mentioned too, um, Alan, you mentioned a particular song. Hopefully we'll be able to insert that uh, maybe into the video here or, um, or at least afterwards. And then some of the things that Garrett mentioned, we'll have that in as well. But gentlemen, really appreciate y'all's time this afternoon. God bless. And uh, we'll see you, uh, see you in uh, September, okay? Thanks, Kevin. Bye-bye. Yes, we've been done, though.